there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Now, enjoy the show. You don't look well. I'm tired. I can see that. Not just your body. No, everything. I'm just exhausted. I have been following the same person for 15 years, and I still don't know his identity. Would that satisfy you? If you knew tomorrow you had a name and a face, let's imagine that the police found him and put him in prison. Would you be through? Of course. I'm not sure you would. I think the more you chase, the more you are tied to this man. I don't think an answer would do you much good. By this point, it may be futile. How can you say that? I would have my closure. You're not going to find closure from a case, Mario. That is not where your closure comes from. You should know this by now. There are things of this world we cannot change. We must make our peace with what is. And you must take those steps. You cannot wait for the answer. What are you saying? I cannot tell you what to do or which path to choose. But I feel that you are no longer meant for this one. You think I should quit? I think a new line of work would do you some good. A change of scenery. Maybe something that doesn't take so much of your time. Your energy. Your daughter is growing up. Soon she will be grown and you will have missed the beauty of her life. I try not to think about that. I'm filled with... I have many regrets. So start today. Stop creating them. You must find the strength within yourself to give it up, Mario. Give it up or watch it destroy you. Mario Spezzi, the journalist who first covered the double homicide in 1981, was still writing about the monster of Florence in 1993. Twelve years had gone by, and Spezzi was also still meeting with his mental and spiritual advisor, Brother Babini. Spezzi had written about seven of the eight murdered couples. In witnessing the grisly details, he had experienced a very real manifestation of evil. And he needed someone to keep him sane and centered. Brother Babini knew the role he played in Spezzi's life, so he suggested that Spezzi give up the case and potentially pursue a different career. In 1993, however, Spezzi was still in the action of it all, and one of the many tuning into the highly publicized trial of Pietro Pacciani. Pacciani, a farmer from Tuscany, had just been charged with the 14 murders attributed to the monster of Florence. And now everyone was watching to see if a jury would convict him. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. You're listening to our final episode on the Monster of Florence. If you want to hear our investigations into other cold cases, you can listen, subscribe, and write reviews on your favorite podcast directory. You can also listen through our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. And I'm your host, Carter Roy. Now, 
back to Florence's most famed serial killer. The trial of Pacciani would become one of Italy's most famous. It is probably second only to the Amanda Knox trial. Much like the O.J. Simpson trial in America, the Pacciani trial received extensive media coverage in Europe. Newspapers saved their front pages for new details from the trial. As the drama unfolded, the prosecution called Pacciani's wife and children to the stand to testify about his character and life. One of Pacciani's daughters revealed much and some of it may have hurt the prosecution. What is your relation to the defendant? I am his eldest daughter. And how would you describe your father? What initial words come to mind? Angry, violent, drunk. Your father drinks a lot? Every day, all the time. He's drunk more often than he is not. Has he ever physically abused anyone in your household? Yes. Who? All of us. And who would that include? Me, my sister, and our mother. So you're saying that your father, that man there, has physically abused every woman in your household? Yes. Would you say that your father hates women? He has no patience for them. He's like a short fuse, and he explodes. I see. How does your father spend most of his nights? Drunk. On the couch or in his studio painting. Were there nights he was gone that you wondered where he could have been? He was home most nights. What about the nights in question? The dates of the murders listed? I don't remember. Do you believe your father is capable of murder? Yes. He has already killed a man, as you know. Yes, we have addressed the 1951 murder, which was committed in a fit of rage and jealousy. Objection. That is hearsay. Sustained. I'll rephrase. Your father killed a man who was engaging in an illicit affair with his fiancée at the time. Is that correct? Yes. He served 13 years in prison for it. So let the jury understand that the man in question is capable of murder because he has killed before and that his daughter one of the closest to him in relation and proximity, believes he could do it again. Yes, I I do believe that, but- You only need to respond to the questions asked, Miss Pacciani. I know, but, but I must say something. I will continue with my questioning and you may answer. I don't think he is the monster. That is not the question I asked. Your Honor, I request that the witness be allowed to finish her thought. I'll allow it. Go ahead, Miss Pacciani. My father, well, He would not have time to kill those people. Uh, uh, And why is that? Well, he spends all his time yelling and hitting us. He's a bully. Is a bully not capable of murder? Not someone as drunk as him. He he would stumble over himself before he'd be able to kill someone the way the monster did. This testimony appeared pretty damaging to the prosecution. Now that the defense was on a high from that blunder, Pachani's attorney addressed the jury with confidence. On Friday evening, September 9, 1983, two German tourists were killed in their Volkswagen bus. Please take a look at Exhibit A. As you will see, the windows of the van are much higher than the windows of a sedan. The bullet holes made into the glass of these windows show us that the shooter must have been at least 5 feet 10 inches in height. My client is just under 5 feet 3 inches. 
quite a profound difference in stature, no? Later, Pachani's attorney went on to discuss the murder of the French tourists. Let us now look at the crime in 1985. The killer attacks a French couple who are camping in the woods. The killer shoots the female victim in the face, killing her instantly. The killer shoots the male victim in the hand. The male victim escapes and, having the extensive training of a sprinter, darts into the woods. At the time of the murder, my client was then 60 years of age with a heart condition. Is it at all conceivable that he could chase down a trained professional runner and then tackle him to the ground? I think not. The prosecution then took the stage and called Pachani himself to the stand. Mr. Pachani, can you tell me what is inside this evidence bag? I don't know. Describe it for me. It looks like uh, a notepad. That is correct. It was uncovered during a police search of your house and surrounding property. And what about this item, also found on your property? That looks like, uh, I don't know, uh, some soap. Yes, a bar of soap. Do you know what these two items have in common? I do not. These two items belong to the German victims of the 1983 crime. Their relatives have confirmed this in their testimonies. This begs the question, what were you doing with two items belonging to the victims? I don't know. They're not mine. I have a third evidence bag. In it is an unfired bullet from a 22 Beretta, the same type of gun believed to be used in all eight crimes. This bullet was found in your garden during a police search. That is not mine. It was found in your garden, Mr. Pachani, and not easily so. It was buried deep in the dirt, as if someone intended to get rid of it. That is not true. Mr. Pachani, contain yourself in my court. Mr. Pachani, you are being charged with the murders of 14 people. May I remind you that you have sworn on a holy Bible. Are you responsible for these homicides? No! Are you the killer referred to as the monster of Florence? No! I am a sweet little lamb. I, I hurt nobody. You haven't hurt anybody? You killed a man in 1951. You were convicted of raping your daughters. You have abused your wife and children on numerous occasions. I would say you have hurt many people. No! No! I am here being crucified like Christ on the cross! Mr. Pachani, contain yourself. No further questions. On November 1st, 1994, the judge declared a verdict. He found Pachani guilty of 14 of the 16 murders associated with the monster of Florence. Although many believed he was also responsible for the 1968 killing, there was not enough evidence to convict him on that one. He was sentenced to life in prison. Solo it is The newspapers reported the verdict. La Provincia featured a headline that read, Pachani e il mostro. Pachani is the monster. So the public now had its answer. But Mario Spezzi was not convinced he believed the killer was still out there. His instincts were strong. The saga would continue, especially considering what happened next. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. Two years later, in 1996, Pachani was back in the limelight for his appeals hearing. In a strange turn of events, the prosecutor, Piero Toni, actually defended Pachani at one point in the trial. 
Based on the evidence here, it is apparent that Mr. Pacciani is an obsessive, dirty old man. His actions have displayed much of the worst human nature has to offer. But what the evidence lacks is cold hard facts that would lead us to conclude that Mr. Pacciani is indeed the monster of Florence. Because of this, I believe he should be acquitted. Wait! The prosecutor responsible for upholding the guilty verdict actually urged the court for an acquittal? Yes, but he did more than that. Examining the evidence and police work, I am absolutely shocked that a conviction was ever made. The investigation into Mr. Pacciani's life is like that of the work of Inspector Clouseau. No murder weapon has ever been found. There are no eyewitnesses to these crimes. All the evidence is circumstantial at best. Wow. So not only did the prosecutor basically change sides, but he also insulted Perugini and his team of investigators. That's right. But then came the last day of the trial, and the tables were turned yet again. The prosecutor returned, and it seemed he had changed his mind. Your Honor, the prosecution has four new witnesses whose testimony is vital to this case. But in the interest of their protection, I cannot reveal their identities. I can only refer to them as Alpha, Beta, Gamma, and Delta. Counselor, this is not an algebra class. I understand that, Your Honor, but- I cannot allow new evidence to be taken into consideration. This case is dismissed, and the acquittal is granted. So there you have it. Pacciani's conviction was overturned, and he was a free man. However, it's important to note that the testimonies of the witness eventually came to light. The star witness, who is either Alpha, Beta, Gamma, or Delta, was in reality named Giancarlo Lotti. He was a friend of Pacciani's. He was suspected to have been an accomplice to Pacciani. And so, after authorities tapped his phones, they were able to arrest and interrogate him. Tell us about your involvement in the crimes associated with the monster of Florence. I was present at some of the crimes. And what was your role? I was lookout. For who? For Pietro and Mario? The man named Mario that Loti referred to was Mario Vanni, also a friend of Pacciani's. What were their roles in the crimes? Pietro shot the victims. And Vanni? He cut the women. Are you telling me that your singular role in these crimes was to stand around like a pansy and scream if anyone came down the road? I told you, I was lookout. That seems like the easiest job. The least incriminating. I guess... What are you saying? You never actually committed these crimes, but just watched? Yes. I just watched. Mr. Lottie, you are too scared to have only been an observer. You are far too scared. Look at you. You shake like a pansy. But you are not a pansy, are you? Pansies don't pull triggers. But you have, haven't you? No. Only they did. Mr. Lottie, you can diminish your sentence with a full confession. But in order for it to be complete, you cannot leave anything out. I need everything. I... You what? I pulled the trigger once. When? Uh, the Germans. You shot the German tourists in 1983? I shot them. Why? I was hired to. We were hired. Hired? To do what exactly? Handle a few little jobs. These jobs, what were they? To kill and take from the women. Take what? Their parts. Their female parts. Why? He wanted them. Who wanted them? Who? Some doctor. A doctor? What is the doctor's name? I don't know his name. You think I believe that? I, I, I don't know it. Okay, Mr. Lottie. What did this doctor want with female parts? He needed them. 
Mr. Lottie, if we are going to get anywhere, you need to tell me more. What did the doctor need the parts for? Offerings. Offerings for what? Do you not know? He wanted them for black masses. What? He gave them to the devil. Loti's strange confession led to the conviction of himself and Mario Vanni. They were both sent to prison. However, Spetsy was not buying it. He still believed there was a link to the Sardinian clan and didn't believe Pacciani and his friends, all uneducated laborers, could pull off such elaborate crimes. Nevertheless, the confession also introduced a bizarre possibility, that the monster killed and mutilated for the purpose of devil worship. Which Spetsy also didn't buy. But in this hypothetical scenario, the female parts were taken and offered up to the devil in black masses. For those of you listeners who are not well versed on satanic rituals, here is some backstory. A black mass is, specifically, the inversion of the traditional Catholic mass, first established by the Roman Catholic Church. But instead of honoring God, worshippers pledged themselves to the devil. The intent of this ritual is to mock God and praise Satan, and gain power through the blessings of the devil. The ritual can include desecration of the cross, animal sacrifices, physical and or sexual abuse of women, the killing of infants, and other horrific criminal activities. So could this be true? The serial killer known as the Monster of Florence was actually tied to a satanic sect? Well, it seems a little out there, but if it is true, the other question is, who is this doctor leading these black masses? Wouldn't we all like to know? He was never discovered. As for Pachani, while he was awaiting another trial, he suffered a heart attack. He died in 1998 before it could ever take place. And so, in 1998, 17 years after the hunt for the monster began, Spetsy was burnt out. So he finally took Brother Babini's advice. He quit his job at La Nation and became a partner in his cousin's luggage business. Hmm, quite a change of scenery. However, Spetsy was too much of a committed journalist to quit cold turkey. He remained a freelance reporter on the case, but cut down his workload considerably. He wrote very infrequently for the paper. Of course he did. And it's at this point that Spetsy may have received the most crucial information regarding the monster. That's right. And the information came from a high-ranking official in the Carabinieri, Italy's military police force. This person offered up a confidential file containing a secret investigation into the monster's slayings. In it was a report done by the United States FBI for Chief Inspector Ruggiero Perugini a few years back. The report concluded much of what Spezzi already had. For example, it described the profile of the monster, a lonely man, sexually impotent, who harbors a strong hatred towards women and fulfills his sexual needs by killing and then mutilating his female victims. The report also stated that the monster chose his victims at random, but methodically determined the locations, always choosing familiar places close to home. Beyond profiling the killer, the report presented a possible suspect. This suspect, who will have to remain anonymous, was a Sardinian man and the son of one of the original clan leaders. He was a truck driver, and he was living in Florence. Now, at this point, Spetsy was working with an American writer named Douglas Preston. 
Preston, who had purchased a house in Italy not too far from where one of the monster killings took place, had sought out Spezzi. Well, they hit it off and decided to write a book together about the monster of Florence. So when Spezzi discovered the new suspect from the FBI file, he and Preston tracked him down. They wanted an interview with the Sardinian for their book. And of course, they also wanted to know more. They had to. Maybe this would be the answer to the decades-long question. After locating the man's apartment, Spetsy and Preston went there unannounced, which was a terribly bold move. The risks people take in the name of journalism. Spetsy gave a fake name, and he and Preston were buzzed up to the unit. But when the Sardinian opened the door, he immediately recognized Spetsy. Well, considering Spetsy was a famed reporter in Florence, he would have been quite recognizable. Was the suspect worried at all that Spetsy was there? Oh, if he was, he hid it well. He invited Spetsy and Preston inside and actually admitted how much of a big fan he was of Spetsy's work. Not exactly what one might expect from a possible serial killer. The man was in his mid-40s at the time of their visit. He was muscular, with tattoos and numerous scars. He offered them a rare kind of Sardinian liquor, and they sat down at his kitchen table. Once the suspect agreed to an interview, Spetsy took out his tape recorder. But the suspect refused to be captured on tape. Why? He told Spetsy he was jealous of his own voice. Mm, nice evasion tactic. And full of Italian charm. So Spetsy took out a notepad and wrote down the interview instead. When he began asking questions about the suspect's father, a high-level Sardinian clan member, things got interesting. The conversation you're about to hear is taken verbatim from the recorded account, but please note, in the interest of our young listeners, some of the more vulgar words have been changed. Your father had strange sexual habits. Perhaps that was the reason you hated him. Back then, I knew nothing about it. Only later did I hear about his... tics. But you and he had some really big fights, even when you were young. There was one time when we had a big fight, and I pinned him, putting my scuba knife to his throat. But he broke free, and I locked myself in the bathroom. When did you leave Florence? In the beginning of 1975. First I went to Sardinia, and then to Lake Como. Then you returned and got married. Right. I married a childhood sweetheart, but it didn't work. We married in 1982 and separated in 1985. What didn't work? She couldn't have children. Can I ask you a direct question? <laughs> sure. I may not answer it. If your father owned the 22 Beretta, you were the person in the best position to take it. I have proof I didn't take it. Which is? If I had taken it, I would have fired it into my father's forehead. And so you're not the monster of Florence. No. I like my women whole. There are a few important elements of that interview that we must address. Right. To be exact, there are three things that basically incriminate the anonymous Sardinian. Let's review them. First, the man refers to putting a scuba knife to his father's throat. If you'll recall, the investigator from the 1981 crime said that the medical examiner believed a scuba knife had been used to mutilate the woman. And this man just freely admitted he owned a scuba knife? Yes, it seems risky. Maybe he was just testing the waters. Maybe he didn't realize it was incriminating. Or maybe he just didn't care. This man had possibly gotten away with 14 murders. By this point, he'd be pretty cocky, right? Perhaps. 
The second thing to note is that the man claimed to be away from Florence from 1975 to 1980. Well, this is important because during those years, there were no murders committed by the monster. The third and most interesting thing about this interview is the part about why his marriage ended. The suspect claims it was because his wife couldn't have children. But Spetsy would later reveal that this was not the case. The marriage had been annulled because the man couldn't consummate, meaning he couldn't sleep with his own wife. Well, what does that tell us? That this man was most likely impotent. Which is one of the major characteristics of the monster profile. Wow, that's a lot of information from such a short excerpt of an interview. So whatever happened to this anonymous Sardinian? Apparently, he was investigated briefly, but was never pursued as a viable suspect. Perhaps the Sardinian clan theory had gone stale by now. The police had moved on to other theories. Despite what authorities believed, when Spetsy and Preston returned to their car after the interview, they both unequivocally agreed on something. They felt that they had just met the monster of Florence. Our story will continue in a moment, after the break. And now, let's continue the story. While Spetsy and Preston were conducting their own rogue investigation for their book, Italian law enforcement was continuing its own. Now, by this point, Inspector Perugini, who had led to the arrest of Pacciani, was now off the case. Uh, but guess what? There was a new sheriff in town. The chief inspector became Michel Gutierri. In this case, Gutierri would become known for stretching the rules to accomplish what he desired. In fact, he and Spetsy would clash on more than one occasion. Well, not to mention, they would both publish books about the monster that feature opposing theories. But before all that, Gutierri formed an elite investigative unit called G-I-D-E-S. Guides. Well, when translated into English, the acronym stands for Investigative Group for Serial Crimes. This is the second task force created to find and capture the monster of Florence. Well, you may recall the first special unit, Team Anti-Monster. By this point, it had basically dissolved. In 2001, Gutierrez's new squad began investigating a villa in the town of Chianti. This villa was one of the places Pachani worked as a gardener, and now it was suspected to have been the site where satanic rituals took place. When Gutierrez and his men searched the location, they uncovered a strange stone. Gutierrez theorized that the stone was connected to the occult, and a strong piece of evidence that linked the monster to devil worship. So he was basically continuing the theory that the monster of Florence killed and mutilated for the purpose of black masses. Correct. Well, flash forward to 2004. Gutierrez was still hard at work at the satanic sect theory. Still? Three years later? Yes, this investigation moved at a snail's pace. But something was about to jolt it into overdrive. In the summer of 2004, Mario Spezzi learned that an old friend of his was a suspect in the mysterious death of an Italian doctor named Francesco Narducci. Gutieri believed that Narducci had been killed by the monster and his satanic cult. And there are some that theorize that Narducci may have been the elusive doctor involved in those black masses that we talked about. Well, this has never been confirmed, though. The important thing to note is that Gutierrez used this connection of Spetsy's friend and the dead doctor to come after Spetsy. Seems like a pretty thin thread, if you ask me. Well, some believe Gutierrez was in part getting revenge on Spetsy for publicly denouncing the satanic sect theory. Now, which made Gutierrez and his team look bad. 
So, one morning in the fall of 2004, Gutierrez and his squad came pounding on Spetsy's front door. Ugh. Police, open up! Ugh. What is that? Huh? Mr. Spetsy, open up! This is the police! The, the police? Mario, what's happening? Stay here, my dear. I will find out. What in the name? No, you're in there, Mr. Spetsy. Open this door now. <sighs> Come on. Let's go, sir. Hey, Mr. Spetsy, I have here a warrant to search the premises. What? My God, on what ground? It's written here. You may read it. Now, wait a minute. Mario? Miriam, there's been a mistake. No mistake, Mr. Spetsy. You may read the warrant. Warrant? Mario, what's it say? Materially damage the investigation by casting doubt on the accusations through use of the medium of television? What is this? The interview you recently did on television, Mr. Spetsy. Your public ridicule of the investigation has impeded the case. You've got to be kidding me. This warrant does nothing but take away my rights as a journalist. There is more. Evidence of peculiar and suspicious interest in the investigation. I'm a reporter, for heaven's sakes. Of course I take an interest in the case. I thought you were the co-owner of a luggage business, Mr. Spetsy. <clears throat> that too. Nonetheless, we will be conducting this search. The search took seven hours. Police took Spetsy's computer, files, clippings, interviews, notes, anything even remotely relating to the monster of Florence. Then the men found something else. They claimed it was secretly placed behind a door. What was it? A stone, which looked almost identical to the stone found at the villa believed to be the meeting place for the satanic cult. Wait, wait, what? Well, don't get too excited. The stone found at Spetsy's and the one found at the villa are supposedly antique Tuscan doorstops that are commonly found in homes all over the region. So the stone found at the villa wasn't some object used in the occult? Apparently not. However, Gucciari still believed it was. Well, beside the stone, whatever became of the search of Spetsy's home? Nothing much. But Spetsy and his co-writer, Douglas Preston, continued to pursue their own leads, which eventually got them into trouble. In 2006, Preston was interrogated and ordered to return to the U.S. Spetsy, on the other hand, got the very short end of the stick. Eleven days before the publication of his book on the monster, Spetsy was arrested. So the reporter who first covered the case way back in 1981 was now, in 2006, being arrested as a suspect in the murders. That's right. Pretty insane, isn't it? Well, the Italian police, under the command of Michel Gutierrez, denied Spetsy access to his lawyers and threw him in solitary confinement for five days. Well, was that legal, considering he wasn't really a dangerous suspect? Well, uh, apparently the police asked for special permission to treat Spetsy like a terrorist or mafia leader, so they got a pass for the cruel and unusual punishment. Spetsy spent three weeks in Capanni, one of Italy's worst prisons. During interrogations, he found out that the police had tapped his phones and his car. What a terrifying experience. It must have been. Then, he was finally granted freedom by a panel of judges. The imprisonment had been nullified. After having survived that ordeal, Spetsy returned home to his wife and daughter. Mr. Spezzi, will you continue to investigate the monster? No. 
I'll not deal with the monster affair anymore. Will you continue to write? Yes. I'll write books. But not about that. Whilst Betsy may have closed the door on the monster of Florence forever, the world has not. This unsolved case remains one of the most fascinating, frustrating, and puzzling serial killer stories of all time. So what prevailing theories remain the most popular? Well, the first is the one Mario Spezzi and Douglas Preston wrote in their book, Sweet Bloody Hills. It involves the anonymous Sardinian man, the one they interviewed in Florence. Well, Spezzi believes that someone high up in the Sardinian clan, perhaps Salvatore Vinci, committed the initial murder in 1968. If you recall, this was the murder of Barbara Locci and her lover. Her husband, Stefano Mele, had been convicted, but new information then suggested it was an organized killing. After this crime, someone with ties to the clan got access to the gun, the 22 Beretta with a defective firing pin, and began committing copycat murders. This would make sense considering that there was no female mutilation until after 1968. Mutilating the female victims could have been the second killer's signature touch on the calling card that he developed once he began murdering. Let's review the evidence against the anonymous Sardinian. One, he had direct ties to the Sardinian clan. Two, he owned a scuba knife, which is believed to be one of the murder weapons. Three, he was unable to consummate his marriage, which is just code for impotence. This would explain his need to experience sex another way. Murdering and mutilating women could have easily been his twisted way of doing that. Four, the gap in serial killings directly correlates with his absence from Tuscany. As you can see, there is ample evidence to conclude that out of all of the suspects highlighted by the investigation, the anonymous Sardinian man is the most plausible. But then there is Michel Gutierrez's theory, which he addresses in his own book on the subject. This theory pinpoints Pacciani and his friends Mario Vanni and Giancarlo Lotti as the three working together to enact killings and procure female body parts for satanic rituals. Gutierrez believes that the three were paid for these jobs by someone in the social elite, and perhaps the mysterious Dr. Loti referred to in his interrogation. The doctor, however, has never been found. The evidence in favor of this theory was discussed at Pacciani's trial. First, there were objects found at his home that belonged to some of the victims. Well, second, Pacciani had murdered before. Third, he was sexually violent and served time for raping his daughters. Fourth, he was a poor laborer and could have used the money from these hired killings. We also have a confession from Loti that he, Vani, and Pachani committed these crimes for another person. Whether that confession is true, we'll never know. Finally, there was that bullet from the 22 Beretta per genie found in Pachani's garden. Yes, but the ballistics expert who originally claimed it was a match for the murder weapon later admitted he was facing pressure from police at the time. So he suggested that he may have lied about the match? Right. So one of the major pieces of evidence against Pacciani could have been fabricated all along. And then there is the theory that it was none of the above, that the true monster of Florence was a man never investigated. A shadow. A specter. Someone who stalked the Tuscan countryside at night with the urge to kill and continued to escape detection. The only problem with this theory is if, if it was somebody else, someone unrelated to Pacciani or the Sardinians, how did he get the gun that was used in the 1968 crime? 
Now that is a good question. And despite this issue, an attorney named Nino Falasto, who represented Mario Vanni in his trial, proposed a new theory in this vein. That the killer was actually a member of the police force. Falasto probably used this to promote his client's innocence, but maybe there could be some truth to it. Who knows? The theory is as follows. The monster, actually a police officer, would patrol the woods and pull up in his squad car, startling young couples who were fooling around. He'd knock on the window and say he was doing a routine check. Maybe he'd give them a ticket. In order to do that, he'd need them to pull out their license and registration. According to police reports from a few of the crimes, the registration slip of the victim's car was found on the floor, as if it had been taken out to be shown to an officer. In addition to the registration slip, there was an anonymous witness for one of the murders who reported a suspicious-looking police car patrolling the area that later became a crime scene. So, basically, someone admitted to seeing a police car in the woods shortly before a murder was committed there. In this theory, Filasto also suggests that the monster of Florence had sent in the news clipping of the 1968 murder to throw police off of his scent that he was actually trying to push investigators in the direction of the Sardinian clan to avoid detection. While this theory is intriguing, it feels like there isn't much to back it up. Maybe we're just partial to journalists, but we agree with Mario Spezzi. Our money is on the anonymous Sardinian as the monster. If you think about it, investigators on the case kept changing, but Spezzi remained the one constant. He spent about 25 years following and studying the monster of Florence. Because of that, we feel that he is the most reliable source on the subject. Mario Spezzi passed away in September 2016. He has several books and countless newspaper articles that speak to his legacy. And perhaps he even knew the true identity of the monster, but he never got the satisfaction of it being confirmed. And maybe, in the end, he didn't need it. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review. Or tell us what you think on Facebook or Twitter at Parcast Network. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. And next Tuesday, we'll investigate the Freeway Phantom. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live until next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Maggie Admire. Unsolved Murders is written by Jessica Malo and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Manu Narayan, Steve Pinto, Greg Polson, and Vanessa Rich. Richardson.